Good morning, church. Great to be with you this morning and great to sing with you like that. Great to sing truth with you like that. Luke, Josh, team, thank you for leading us this morning in truth and in worship of our great risen King. Acts chapter 2, you probably know where to turn. If you don't and you're a guest, we are walking verse by verse through this great New Testament book of Acts. So go ahead and find your place there. Acts chapter 2, I'm going to pick up where we left off last week. And just a reminder, as we walk through the book of Acts and you are reading through the book of Acts and talking through it in your life groups and different things like that, uh, it's not just a story of what's happened in the past. It is that, but it's also a prayer. Lord, do this in us. Do these things in us. Like this uh, church, this early church. God, we're praying that you will make us desperately dependent. Said that last week, that scary prayer of God. God, would you make us feel uncomfortable? Make us know our dependence upon you. We're asking, Lord, make us fervently loving. Lord, make us sacrificially devoted, radically repentant, boldly proclaiming, globally impacting, joy-filled church that's unleashed with the gospel of Christ to the ends of the earth. We want to be that kind of church. That's the kind of church I want to be a part of. So, Lord, do that in our midst through this great book of Acts. Now, I'm going to pick up where we left off last week. We're in Acts chapter 2, talking through the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 2 is just one day. A lot takes place there. The church goes from 120 people to 3,120 in one day. A lot takes place in Acts chapter 2. Now we're going to pick up around verses 13, 14, something like that. But what I want to try to do, give me just a minute and let me try to set the terrain or the context of what we're getting ready to read. This is one of those passages, I'll be honest, if you just kind of read through it and skim through it, through it, you might be tempted to say, I really don't know what's going on here. Let's just move on to the next chapter. Let me set the trajectory and the terrain really quick. So you guys know, when you read through your Bible, the Old Testament portion of your Bible primarily focused on one nation, one people, nation of Israel, the Jewish people, Right? All the way back to the beginning of the nation of Israel, a man named Abraham. We know the song, right? Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had father Abraham. Right. That's where the nation of Israel started. God made a promise to Abraham from the very beginning. And here was his promise. I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth through you and through this nation. What does that have to do with anything? Stay with me. In other words, the nation of Israel. God brought that nation into existence to be a blessing to the rest of the world, us included. How did God plan to do that? If you walk through the Old Testament, you hear over and over this covenant promise that one day, coming from the nation of Israel, was going to be one born, this promised one. This Messiah, maybe you've heard that term before. The word Messiah means the promised one, the coming one, the anointed one. So throughout the Old Testament, there's this picture, this arrow, this promise. One is coming. One is coming. One is coming. He's going to make everything right. He's going to establish the government. He's going to rule with justice and righteousness. He's going to make everything right. One is coming. One is coming. Now, you grew up in a Jewish home, 
You grew up as a little boy, little girl. You had been taught the idea that the Messiah is coming. So you grew up with the expectation of maybe, maybe in my lifetime, maybe in my generation, I get to be the generation where the Messiah comes. There's this expectation that every little Jewish boy, every little Jewish girl grew up with, maybe I will live during the days of Messiah. Got that? Now, Palm Sunday, fast forward. Read about it in the Gospels. That's what we're celebrating in a sense today, meaning a week before resurrection. Palm Sunday, when Jesus Christ entered Jerusalem, if you know the story in the Gospels, there was this fanfare around Jerusalem, and everybody came out, and they were waving what? Pine branches. No, not pine branches. Palm branches, because to indicate, we think this one may be the Messiah. So there are all these crowds out when Jesus came into Jerusalem and they were chanting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There was this sense that maybe it's finally time and the Messiah is here. Right? You get that? I want you to, I want you to feel that. If you know your history at all from Palm Sunday to Good Friday, things change significantly, Right? The same crowd that was saying he might be the Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Was chanting what? Crucify. Crucify. What in the world happened? Under the influence of these Jewish religious leaders. They had twisted so much the scripture. And who this Jesus of Nazareth really, really was. They had convinced him he's, he's a traitor. He's not your Messiah. He's, he's nothing. He's merely a carpenter from Jerusalem. Or from Nazareth. So the same crowd, now hang with me, the same crowd that was saying he might be the Messiah, same crowd that's going to shout crucify him. Now, fast forward 50 days to Acts chapter 2. There's a crowd. <laughs> There's a big crowd again in Jerusalem and this crowd is gathered and you know why the crowd is gathered. We read it last week. God has by the Spirit of God has come and He's birthed the church and there's this loud noise from heaven and there's these 120 people running around with tongues of fire and they're speaking the languages of the world and all these people are coming out. They go, what in the world is all this about? There's a crowd. Now here's what happens in Acts chapter 2 and here's what we're getting ready to read. I want you to understand the context and the weight of this. To that Jewish crowd, Peter is going to stand up and he's going to say, you are living in the days of Messiah. You're living in the last days. And then he's going to come back and he's going to say, and your Messiah has come. Problem. You missed him. And even worse, not only did you miss him, you crucified him and nailed him to a cross. Now imagine the tension in the crowd as Peter does that. So that's where we pick up in Acts chapter 2. The apostle Peter representing the 120, representing the church, is trying to explain all that's been going on. This huge crowd, these Jewish believers with this messianic expectation. 
Peter is going to stand up and declare, we're living in the age of Messiah, and the Messiah is here, but you missed him. You missed him. So follow with me, Acts chapter 2, we're going to pick up in a verse, oh, we'll start in verse 12 to get a little context. There's a Bible in front of you, if you need a copy of the scriptures, the verses will be on the screen. Here's Peter, here's the context, Acts 2, day of Pentecost, verse 12. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does all this mean? They've heard this wind, they, they've, they've seen the tongues of fire, uh, they're not exactly sure what it all means, we tried our best to explain it to you last week, and then they say, they are, others were mocking, verse 13, and they're saying they are full of sweet wine. Some were saying, this is just drunk people running around. Verse 14, but Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. Peter now is going to take his stand and by the way, in that day, rabbis or teachers always sat when they taught. Peter says, none of that. I'm going to stand because of what I have to share with you. And Peter is going to declare something incredibly powerful that we just referred to. Now, when I was in seminary, I had a, I had a preaching class. And you say, you took a preaching class? Well, it doesn't show. Anyway, I'm trying. So in preaching class, they would always tell you, you want to start with a really good introduction. It kind of catches everybody's attention, you know. Well, as Peter gets ready to begin this very first Christian message, the Holy Spirit has just given him the greatest introduction in the history of the world. This fire has come out of heaven, this, this loud noise, and everyone's coming out. They're hanging on Peter's every word. They're trying to figure out, what does this mean? And the Apostle Peter begins to preach here. He goes on. Verse 15. He says, for these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it's only the third hour of the day. It's 9 a.m. That's not the issue. But this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In other words, Peter is getting ready to go back to the Old Testament scriptures and say, listen, everything you're seeing... What's happening in your midst has been predicted by the prophet Joel. The Old Testament has predicted it. He's saying you should understand. If you understood your scriptures, you would understand the Messiah and the season you're living in. Now stay with me. Verse 17. And Peter says. Now, go on up to verse 17. Anytime you see all caps like that in your New Testament, that's an Old Testament quote. Peter's quoting the Old Testament and he says this. And it shall be in the last days. So Peter is going to say to this crowd, we have now entered into a new era of redemptive history. We've now entered into what's called the last days. Joel prophesied about it. The Old Testament pointed to it. And he says to that crowd, we are in the last days. Now, Peter is not some kind of end time prophet saying, well, you know, the world is going to end in 1984. 
or the world is going to end in 2016. That's not what Peter's doing. P Peter's not like the Jehovah's Witnesses who over the past 100 years have predicted the end of the world to be 1878, 1881, 1914, 1918, 1925, 1951, 1975, and the year 2000. By the way, missed them all. And the teaching now is that there's a strong indication that 2033 might be the end. So watch out. That's not what Peter's doing. Peter is saying, Jewish crowd, from your Jewish scriptures, you need to understand the season or the era that you're now living in. And he says it's called the last days. Side note, to those who want to say the Bible is no longer relevant do you realize there is one and only one book that gives the entire panorama of human history from beginning to end the Bible? That's it. Could not be human origin. Only God is able to say from the beginning to the end, here's what it looks like. And Peter, pulling from the Old Testament, is saying, what we have seen here at Pentecost is now, according to Joel, clear indication that we are in the last days. What does that mean? Days that began when Messiah first came. Days that will end when Messiah returns again. It is a period and a season characterized by some distinctive things. And that's what Peter does. He goes down through the rest of these verses and he explains some specific things that are characteristic of these last days. Hang with me. Verse 17, he says, uh, I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind. The last days will be characterized by pouring out a baptism of the spirit. We just saw that happen. The last days will be characterized, he says, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, your old men will see dreams. It'll be characterized by spirit-empowered men and women declaring the truth. In other words, we're entering into a new era. He goes on, he says, I'll grant wonders in the sky above, signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. What's that all about? Some of the indicators of the last days haven't happened yet. Some are still future. Jesus indicates in Matthew chapter 24, before he returns, there's going to be all kinds of naturalistic, cataclysmic phenomena in the world. Now, don't go and watch Fox News and think, well, there's another flood. The end must be tomorrow. That's not the point. The point is, understand the era that you're living in in God's redemptive plan. To this Jewish crowd and to us, Peter wants them to understand you're living in the last days. Now keep going. Verse 21, and he says, It shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What does that mean? Here's the characteristic of the last days in which, by the way, you and I are living. Salvation, God's plan Salvation will now be occurring on a global scale. That God's redemptive work is no longer centered on just Israel. God's redemptive work is now global in its scale. Every tongue, nation, tribe, and people that call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You're living in the greatest era of salvation and proclamation of the gospel in human history. Peter says you're living in the last days. 
now. Time out. What does that mean for you and for me? Number one. It means for us as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, filled with his spirit and carrying the message of the gospel, you are living in the greatest days of hi in history for salvation and redemption and the gospel to go out. Greatest days in history. You say, Pastor Mike, I don't know if I believe that. I mean, I live here in East Tennessee and I don't, I don't see a lot of that activity like you're talking about. Don't limit your understanding of the season you're living in to your current experience or by watching Fox News or CNN of how bad everything is and you think, man, God must be totally out of control. Listen to me. You are living in the greatest era for the proclamation of the gospel and the building of the church in all of history. God is building his church. Listen, I just got back from Southern Africa. There is, there is movement there like it's never been reported in history of people coming to Christ, hearing the gospel, the church exploding. The nation of China that Pastor Daniel just got back from is exploding with the gospel like never before. Listen, I want, I want us to understand we are living in the greatest era ever to be proclaiming the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are filled with His Spirit. We have that ministry. We have that call. We are the ones here, sons and daughters, who have been empowered with His Spirit to go tell. It is the last days. And we will continue that until King Jesus comes and makes everything right. That's the era we live in. Now to that Jewish crowd, as they heard that, you've got to be thinking a little bit of critical thought and say, okay, Peter... If you are saying we are living in the last days, or another way to say it, the age of Messiah. If that's true, Peter, this is going on in some of their minds. Okay, If that's true, if we're living in the age of Messiah, what's the next question? Where is the Messiah? Where is he? Peter, if all these signs and scripture is pointing to, and all this stuff you're talking about, you've got to think, okay, where's the Messiah? And that's what Peter sets up his whole message with that. That's how it gets to verse 22. Look at that. So he says, with that background, he says, okay, men of Israel, listen to these words. Men of Israel, listen to my words. Jesus, the Nazarene. A man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst just as you yourselves know. Stop right there. Peter makes no bones about it. He says, age of Messiah, Jesus the Nazarene. Why does he call him Jesus the Nazarene? Why does he call him the Son of Man, Son of God? Why does he use this term, Jesus the Nazarene? Because in that day, first, he wanted to be very clear exactly who he was talking about. It was, a day, it was a name assigned to Jesus in that day. He was from Nazareth, a really a town of derision, not really a place to be proud of, right? That's why it says in John 1, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? So they would assign this. Well, who is it? Well, this is Jesus. What? Jesus of Nazareth. Okay, that's one reason. Another reason Peter is using this is because the religious leaders and others like to use this title as a term of derision towards Jesus. Oh, he's the Nazarene. Nothing good can come from Nazareth. Meaning 
The religious leaders of that day used it against him to say this. There is no way your Messiah comes out of Nazareth. No way. When Jesus hung on the cross, there was a placard hanging over his head. Pilate put several things on it. One of them was Jesus the Nazarene. No mistake who they were talking about. And the irony is, this one that you derided, this one that you thought was unworthy, this one that you thought was only a carpenter, he is your Messiah. And Peter goes on. He says, this one is attested by signs and miracles and wonders. In other words, it was undeniable that through the life of Jesus, there had been signs and miracles and wonders in his life. It was undeniable of all that God had done through these miracles of healing and sight to the blind. And people who couldn't walk could now walk. And people who were dead were now alive. And all these things that only God could do. And the signs and the miracles and the wonders were not about themselves. They were to point to this one who is their Messiah. And I could just imagine in that crowd that were gathered there, there had to be some who had formerly been blind that could now see. And there had to be some that were there, man, that massive crowd in Jerusalem who maybe at one time couldn't walk but can now walk. And maybe in that crowd was a dude named Lazarus. And they're hearing all this that's going on and they've seen all the rejection of Jesus and their heart is breaking because they know, wait a minute, he is your Messiah. He is your Messiah. And Peter is saying this one Jesus was attested by the very miracles of God just as you yourselves know. Verse 23, this man, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Wow. This is no seeker-friendly message that Peter's proclaiming. Being very blunt and very bold, verse 24. But, when you're studying your Bible and you're reading through the New Testament, especially have your pen out and look for some key words that change the whole course and the flow of the meaning. Conjunctions. He says, but you had him crucified, but God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. In other words, God cannot be held down by death. The very one that you crucified is God himself, the God-man, the Messiah. So Peter is making a very thought-out case here to that crowd. You missed your Messiah. And not only did you miss him, you were a part of screaming for his crucifixion. Now Peter goes on and he gives scriptural defense that Jesus is the Messiah. Look at verse 25. He's going to go back and he's going to say, okay, I'm going to quote David, he says. There, King David in the, in the Old Testament, who's responsible for so much of the writing of the Old Testament. David is going to be quoted by Peter. He says, for David says of him... Because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Verse 25, what in the world does that mean? Peter says, listen, David 800 years ago wrote about one who was going to die, but he wasn't going to stay dead. Peter wrote about it. Who was it? Verse 29, brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today. Translation, David wasn't talking about himself. Because he died and we still have his tomb. He's still, his body's still in the tomb. Who was David talking about? 
Verse 31. He, David, looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, of the Messiah, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh undergo decay. Time out. He's he's setting the, the trap here of tension. He's saying, David, your forefather, wrote about the Messiah and said, you will know your Messiah is in your midst when you see one come up out of the grave. And then Peter says, verse 32, this Jesus God raised up again. And if you don't believe it, to which we are all witnesses, all 120 of us saw him dead. And now we give testimony to the fact that he's alive. Remember the beginning of Acts, Jesus presented himself to them alive and then said, go tell I was dead. Now I'm alive. And to those Jews, they were to hear that and they were to think through what David said and what all the prophets said. Wait a minute. If there's one who comes up out of the grave, he must be our Messiah. And Peter says, this Jesus whom you crucified is the very one. He's the one. He's the one. And then to bring it to conclusion, as all good sermons have to do, I guess, Peter ends it in verse 36 and says, Therefore, to make no mistake about what Peter's proclaiming here, therefore... Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord, that's Master, and Christ, that's Messiah. Who? This Jesus that you crucified. Wow. Now that's a heavy message. And you say, how does the crowd here respond? Well, we're going to Look at that next week, specifically. The Spirit of God has so prepared that crowd and is a picture of incredible grace. Many in that crowd, 3,000 to be exact, the same ones who had shouted, crucify him, crucify him, are the same ones who God extends grace to again, and 3,000 believe. Beautiful picture of grace. We'll look at that next week. So what do we here today do with this? What was what, what the point of all this? Peter has stood up in front of this crowd, this Jewish crowd, this hostile crowd, if you will, and he has done this. Watch. He has simply held out the gospel. He has held out the message. We, we use the term gospel here a lot. And we, maybe we don't know exactly even what we're saying. He holds out the message of the announcement of what Jesus Christ has done. Came from heaven. He, was bar- he died. He was buried. He rose from the dead. He triumphed. The gospel message is what has been accomplished by Jesus Christ. And Peter holds out the message of the gospel. Now transition a little bit to be very practical for you and me as Tri-Cities Baptist Church this morning. If you're a guest and you're not, maybe you're not a member, I want, I want to talk to our members for just a minute from this passage. Today starts something really important in the life of our church called Share Week. I mentioned it earlier. Uh, every day, every week is Share Week in that we've been entrusted to go tell, right? We've been entrusted to go tell. We are products of this. We are born again by the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we're beginning a week called Share Week where we have the opportunity, the challenge, if you will, to love someone enough to say, I want to share this with you. You've got to know this. 
the most important message in, in the world. Your, your eternity hangs in the balance. And to have, what's this? To have the same conviction and the same boldness and the same love that Peter had. Some of you are going to be sitting across the table. You may not sit in front of a group of thousands like Peter did. Maybe you will if you do. Preach Jesus, take advantage of it. But you may be sitting across the table or at a cup of coffee or someone with a friend who doesn't know Christ. And I want to help you, help us with that this morning. I'm going to give you four quick gospel realities for us out of this passage we just read. Make it very practical for us. Based on what Peter just did. Based on what Peter just said. What are some things that are true about this gospel that we now have to share? Four things. Ready? Number one, gospel reality is this. God is sovereign. Acts 2.32, the Bible says in one of those verses that we all realize, we read and we scratch our head and we say, I don't really understand how all of that works. I don't know how that goes together in the mind and the plan of God. Acts 2.32 or Acts 2.23, this man, Jesus, was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. The death of Jesus Christ was no accident. You know that, right? Jesus did not die a martyr's death and was hanging on the cross thinking, what went wrong? This was not how I thought it was going to turn out. Nor was God the Father in heaven looking down going, what are they doing to my son? I've got to do something. I've got to stop this. It was all in perfect accord with the sovereign plan of God. Watch this. Plan before the foundation of the world. It's not an accident. When you share the gospel message, you're not sharing an accident of, of unfortunate circumstances that came together. You're sharing the sovereign plan of God, decreed and planned before the world began. Isaiah 53 says, The Lord was pleased to crush him. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Not a single thing transpired and took place that was not perfectly within the plan of Almighty God. Now, you say, Pastor Mike, I don't, I, I don't understand how all that works together. So, Mike, is it not, listen, Mike, is it not unsettling? That God was in perfect control of all of this that took place. It is much more unsettling to believe in a God who is not in control of that. I can't relate and scripture can't relate to a merely responsive God who looks out over history and says, well, I've got to figure something out. Maybe I better come up with a plan. But a sovereign God who works even evil itself for, his, for our good and for his glory. Because think about it. The greatest evil that has ever been committed we say how could all of that happen we read the news we see all this that's going on i get it it's evil and wicked but we see the greatest evil that's ever been committed the murder of the son of god it doesn't get it doesn't get worse than that and god uses it to bring about the greatest good for all eternity here's what that means for you two things number one 
the message that you are sharing of the gospel is within the perfect sovereign plan of God. It is within God's sovereign plan. It is the greatest message ever told. It is not a fable. It is not a story. It was decreed before the world began. And secondly, for you, it means this. And for me, it means this. No person, no situation, no illness, no tragedy, no victory, no success enters my life apart from the sovereign plan of God. Aren't you glad? So, Pastor Mike, I don't always understand it. I get that. And here's the good thing. Not only is our God absolutely sovereign, he is altogether good. Good. Some of you need to hear this morning, and, and I, I have different people on my mind. I've got to be honest, as a pastor, I know what different, different families are going through. Some of you need to hear this morning, not a single cell of your body works independently from the sovereignty of God. Not a cell. Apart from God's sovereign and good hand. And you say, I can't imagine how God is going to work this out for good or for his glory. Can you imagine standing at the foot of the cross and looking up at a bloody Messiah thinking, how in the world is God going to work this for good? He planned it from the beginning. And he planned the outcome as well. And we follow an absolute sovereign God. Secondly, not only is God sovereign in a gospel reality, let me give you a second one. Mankind is wicked. <laughs> We're wicked. So what do you mean? Verse 23, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Acts in no way disguises human responsibility. They were responsible just like you and I for the decisions that we make. Don't know how all that fits together. Doesn't make full sense to me. I get it. But those two are clearly held out in Scripture. What that means is we can read this and we have, we've got to be very cautious in reading this account and something going through our minds like this. Well, if I had been there, I would not have responded to Jesus that way. Because you do understand that the crowd that screamed crucify him, crucify him, crucify him was a very religious crowd. And they were very proud of their self-righteousness and their accomplishments and all that they had done. And they held those out. And when Jesus comes and says, look, you look good on the outside, but your heart is wicked and you're like a whitewashed tomb. They didn't like that. And when we're confronted with our own wickedness and our own inability to do anything worthy of the Lord left to our own strength, sometimes that grates against us and we don't like it. Listen, my wickedness and your wickedness can manifest itself in one of two ways. It can look morally reprehensible and just reprobate and wicked, or it can look, what's this, really religious. Both are wicked before a holy God. So we have to be very careful when we look at this group and say, well, I would have never responded like that. The reality is, apart from God's grace, that is exactly how you would have responded. 
Because we left to ourselves are not sick. We are wicked and we are dead in our sins. And we would have done the exact same thing. Every one of us, me included. Rejoice the grace of God. That's the point. God's grace is not given to someone sick. God's grace is not extended to someone who's just morally bad. God's grace goes to those who are dead and wicked and makes us alive. Because who gets the glory? Not this wicked dude. The grace of God. If you're here and you're a child of God, that would have been you apart from God's grace. Praise Him. Praise Him. Praise Him. So then, when you go to share with your friends... You are able to say with great joy and freshness, I was that wicked one and I have been transformed. The resurrection is real to me and you are not complacent or familiar with the gospel. It is so fresh and alive to you. I have been set free. Peter couldn't stop talking. 120, I couldn't stop talking about it. The message of Christ was so fresh and powerful to them. Number three, very quickly, we're done. Number three, is this, as you share this gospel message, know this, Scripture is fulfilled. What does that mean? That means that the gospel message you're sharing is the fulfillment of all of history. Everything in this Old Testament, everything in your Bible, every offering, every symbolic you know, religious ceremony, all that that went on, every lamb slain, every, all that in the Old Testament ultimately points to the fact that one is coming, one is coming, one is coming. And now within the fulfillment of history, he's here. So you, when you share with your friend or your neighbor in love, you're able to, you're able to say, I'm not just sharing about a Jewish carpenter. It's not just me and, you know, my boss is a Jewish carpenter. No, he's not. He's the God-man. You're sharing about the God-man fulfillment of all of history. Scripture is fulfilled. And then finally, we're done. Gospel reality number four. Jesus who died, rose from the dead, and ascended is both Lord and Messiah. He is Lord and Messiah. Acts 2.36 Now let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified to be both Lord, Master, and Messiah. What is the response to such a one? Simply this. You can read about it at the end of Acts. We're going to talk about it next week. They repented and placed faith in Christ and Christ alone. There was repentance and faith in Christ and Christ alone. Now, how do we respond to this? I'm going to ask our team to come on up and just begin to play. We're, we're, not, we're not finished. I just want to challenge you with a couple things this morning. It's kind of a response time, and then we're going to close. How, how do we hear, particularly those in this room that know Christ, how do we respond? Two things I'm praying this morning for me and for you. Number one is I pray that you respond, respond with fresh joy over the salvation that has been given to you. That you will be reminded even this morning, apart from God's grace, apart from the Spirit opening my eyes, apart from Him letting me see the Son of God for who He is, I'm no different than the one screaming, crucify Him. God, thank you. For your grace. Thank you for your grace. Secondly, I pray our response is simply as the book of Acts holds out. 
Jesus has done all the work. Ours is to go tell. Go tell. The idea that somehow this is foreign to us or that it's some hurdle that we can't overcome. I understand there's challenges. Peter stands in front of a crowd that probably hated his guts. The same crowd that had murdered Jesus a few days earlier and holds out the gospel. The gospel. So for us, I'm praying, Lord, empower us. God, strengthen us to go and tell. Final illustration, and I'm finished. One of the things I, I really love is reading biographies, particularly stories of Christians who have gone before us that made a huge impact in the world. I'm reading a story of a dude right now named Bill Wallace. Now, not Braveheart William Wallace, not that guy, Bill Wallace. Bill Wallace was a physician born and raised in Knoxville, Tennessee. He became a missionary to the Chinese. The gospel so gripped his heart, he was never married, gave his life completely to the mission. He took what he was as a medical doctor and said, I'm going to use this on a foreign field. And he was sent by the International Mission Board to China. Made a massive impact in the 1940s and 50s in the nation of China. If you're a physician, go look up Bill Wallace. Incredible story. Two quotes and I'm finished. There was something said about Bill Wallace. And here it was. It so gripped me this week. Wasn't a preacher, wasn't a pastor, wasn't professionally trained, just a man, took what he had, was going to use it to make Christ known. This is what was said. Sometimes his soft, stuttering witness was more effective than the most eloquent evangelist. I love that. Sometimes his soft, stuttering witness, he didn't say everything right, he didn't say it perfectly, he wasn't eloquent. But man, he was convicted that what he was saying was true. And they had to hear. And then he said this. He said, Pastor Mike, this is so stretching to me. It makes me so uncomfortable, this idea of sharing the gospel. I did. Here's what he said. He said, I'm more aware of my limitations than ever before. My problem is when I begin to impose my limitations on God. If you think, I can't do it, I don't have the power, I don't have the strength, and then you use that as an excuse, you're imposing your limitations on a limitless God. And that gets us in big trouble. Lord, I'm aware of my weaknesses, I'm aware of my limitations, I'm aware I can't do it, I'm aware I'm afraid, I'm aware I don't trust. You are limitless. Your power is limitless. And you have promised your spirit is in me. Go tell. Rejoice. Go tell. Would you bow your heads? Let me pray for you. We're going to stand and sing a song of truth together in just a moment. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here, Lord. I pray for myself, God, that just like the book of Acts, God, we would be bold, fervently loving. Lord, that we would boldly share and tell. Lord, because we can't stop speaking what you have done in our lives. Friends share the gospel with their friends. And I pray for us as a church, Lord, you give us strength, you advance us for the glory of your great name. In Christ's name we pray together. Amen.